When I was a little kid, I used to watch Perry Mason with my parents on TV. How many of you have ever watched Perry Mason? Remember that show? And then I grew up, became a young adult, and, and as a young adult, I watched Matlock. I loved to watch Matlock. How many of you have watched Matlock? A lot of you. And now and I'm an old man, and as an old man, I enjoy watching Bull. Have any of you seen the show Bull on TV? Oh, a lot of you haven't seen it. You need to watch it. It's cool. And now all of these are courtroom dramas, and I just love courtroom dramas. I'm not sure why. I, it's not because I enjoy watching people argue. I don't. I hate watching people argue. I can't even watch the debates. You know, some people say you need to watch the debates to find out what people believe. I'd rather just read it to find out because I hate watching the arguing. I will turn it on, and, and then I'll have to change the channel to Bull or, or something like that or a rerun of Matlock. I just can't watch it. I mean, I'm not even on social media that much. I post, but I don't look at social media because all the people seem to be arguing about politics and about spiritual things and and I just don't like the arguing it makes my blood pressure go up I just can't stand it I guess the reason that I like it these courtroom dramas is because I love watching them build this case then present their case to prove the guilt or innocent of their client we're in the book of Romans and as we look at the book of Romans, that's kind of what we see. It's like Paul is this prosecuting attorney, and he is building this case that we are all guilty before God, each and every one of us. He tells us that we've all rebelled against God, we've all broken God's laws, we've all chosen to go our own way, we've all suppressed the truth. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that the Gentiles are guilty before God. Now, the Gentiles were the non-Jews. You see, the Jews looked at the world in, in two categories. There were the Jews. They were the Jews, God's chosen people. And then there were the Gentiles. Everybody else was a Gentile. They were a pagan. So you had God's chosen people, and you had the pagans. And in chapter 1, Paul makes the case that all the Gentiles... The pagans are guilty before God. Now, when you think about Gentile, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about people who weren't brought up in church, people who didn't go to vacation Bible school, people that didn't live in a Christian home, people that didn't grow up reading the Bible. You can even think about those people in other countries that have little or no access to the gospel. And so when you think about Gentiles, think about those kinds of people, people who were not raised with a spiritual background. And Paul tells us that all of those people are guilty before God. They've suppressed the truth, and in suppressing the truth, they've gone their own way, and as they've gone their own way, they have done vile, despicable, evil things, and because of that, they deserve the wrath of God. But then in chapter 2, Paul moves from showing us that the Gentiles, the pagans, are guilty to showing us that the religious people, the Jews, are guilty. And by the way, some of you may say, well, how can a pagan be guilty if they have never even heard about Jesus? Well, Paul answers that. Paul tells us that everybody has access to God. The Bible tells us that God has made himself known to everybody. 
In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells us that the creation declares the glory of God. He even tells us that as we look at creation, as we look at the heavens, as we look at the plants, as we look at the animals, as we look at the human body, we know there is a God. He tells us that we can even see the the divine attributes of God, the, the nature of God, the power of God in creation. And then Paul tells us that not only has God revealed himself to us in creation, God has revealed himself to our hearts. He says that God has planted a desire in our hearts to know God. In Ecclesiastes, we are told that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men. In other words, what that is saying is there's this desire in each and every one of us to know God. We, we look at the world, we look at the universe, and we think there's got to be more. We look up into the heavens and, and we think there has to be a creator. There could not be all this creation without a creator. God has planted that in our hearts. But we're also told in Romans that God has not only planted this desire to know him in our hearts, God has planted his law in our hearts. We are told that, that when we break God's law, even though we may have never read God's law, we know that we've done wrong. I mean, wherever we go in the world, people know right from wrong. People know good from bad. How do they know that? They know that because God has planted it in their hearts. And so God says, this pagan who is living for themselves, who is out in the world, they're guilty because God has revealed himself to them. And if they wanted to know God, they could know God. But then in chapter 2, he moves to the Jew. And he tells us the Jew is just as guilty. Now, when you think about Jew you need to think about God's chosen people, the seed of Abraham. Abraham was the father of all the Jews, and God chose Abraham, and he told Abraham, I am going to bless the entire world through you. You and and your people are going to be my special people. So the Jews were God's special people. The Jews were entrusted with the law of God, the revelation of God, the word of God. I mean, the Jews were were exceptionally blessed people. Now, when you think about Jews, I want you to think about people who were raised in church, people who had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, people whose parents brought them to church, people who had a devotion at night with their parents, people who went to Bible school, people who, who know the Bible. And Paul tells us that these people who were raised in church, these people who know the Bible, these people who can quote it and recite it, they are just as guilty as the pagan. And the reason is because they are self-righteous. They're hypocrites. They are self-seeking. They desire their will rather than God's will. They're unrepentant. They're willing to do, unwilling to do what God wants them to do. They're relying on their religious rituals and their knowledge of the Word rather than a relationship with God. And God says, because of that, the Jew is guilty. And so Paul has made this case. The pagan who has never heard about God is guilty. And then he says, the Jew who is entrusted with the Word of God, who has been chosen by God to be his special people, they are just as guilty. So Paul was about to conclude his argument. Before he does, though, He thinks of these objections that are going to be raised. The Jews are are going to raise some objections as to why they don't believe what Paul was saying. And so Paul states those objections in chapter 3, 
and he answers those objections. And in verses 1 through 3, in verse 1, he talks about the first objection. And, and this is what he said. He said, if being a Jew doesn't make us right with God, what advantage is there in, in being a Jew? In, in other words, if going to church doesn't get me to heaven, if reading the Bible doesn't get me to heaven, then what good is it to go to church and read the Bible? That's what Paul was saying here. And Paul says, well, there's plenty of advantages to going to church and reading the Bible, but the greatest advantage of all is the Jew has been entrusted with the Word of God. They have the Bible. You see, even though reading the Bible can't save you, when we read the Bible, we are presented with the one who can save us, and that's Jesus. And so even though going to church will never get you to heaven and reading the Bible will never get you to heaven and living a good life will never get you to heaven, those things are good to do because as you do those things, you're going to be drawn closer and closer and closer to the one who can save you. Then he tells us about a second objection in verse 3. He says, well, if you're saying that us Jews have been unfaithful, then since we've been unfaithful, how do we know that God's going to remain faithful? And and, and Paul says to that, God's not like us. Even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. It's in his nature. God is a God who cannot lie. And then he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4, where, where David, King David, the man after God's own heart, had committed adultery. He, he had killed Bathsheba's husband. Remember that story? And in Psalm 51, he is just in anguish. He's under conviction. He's miserable. And he cries out to God asking for forgiveness. And God is faithful. God forgives him. And so Paul is telling us, even when we are unfaithful in our vows to God, even when we are unfaithful in doing what God tells us to do, God is going to always remain faithful to us. That's why he sent Jesus. And, and then the final objection is this. The Jew is going to say, okay, if we are unfaithful and it's our unfaithfulness that, that shows the world that God is righteous, then how can God ever judge us when we sin, when we're unfaithful? In other words, if my sin, if my doing bad things lets the world know that God's righteous, then how can God judge me for doing bad things? And, and Paul answers that with a phrase in the Greek. It, it is translated, God forbid. It, it literally, a, a paraphrase of that could be, that's stupid. And that's what Paul is saying. He is saying, it is stupid for you to say that why can't we go on sinning because if we sin, people see that God is righteous. Paul says, that's stupid. And then he goes on to say, if you have that idea that you can keep on sinning, because God is righteous, you don't understand, and you deserve to be condemned. And then we get to verse 9. And in verse 9, Paul begins to present his closing arguments for the fact that we are all guilty before God. And that's where I want us to hang out for a few minutes. I want to share with you three things that Paul gives us as he wraps up this argument that each and every one of us are guilty before God. That means me, that means you. That means each and every one of us. The first thing that Paul gives us in verse 9 is the charge. And the charge is this. We are all under the power of sin. Each and every one of us. Listen to what it says in, in verse 9. It says, well then, should we conclude that, that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people 
whether Jews or Gentiles are under the power of sin. Now, the Greek text does not have the power of sin. The Greek text simply says under sin. What the passage is literally saying is all of us, both the Jew and the Gentile, are under sin. Back when I was in college, I was playing ball, and, and I was in the weight room one day lifting weights, and I was trying to, to lift a weight, to bench press a weight that I'd never done before. And so I got the weight on there, I sucked myself out, and, and I laid down on the bench, and I picked the weight up off of the, off of the rack, and I put it down on my chest, and I began to push and push and push, but I could not get the weight up. I was stuck under that way and if there had not been a guy on my right and a guy on my left holding the bar lifting it up off of me no telling what would have happened I was stuck under the weight of that bar and I needed to help to get free and that's what the Bible says the Bible says that we are all under the weight of sin we are all under the power of sin we are all under the control of sin and there is nothing on our own that we can do to get out from under that weight, that power, that control. Did you hear me? That's important for you to hear. There is nothing on your own that you can do to get out from under the weight, the power, the control of sin from the moment we are born sin's power begins to show itself in our life the very first time a little child says mine they are showing that they are under the power of sin as that child grows up and and throws their very first temper tantrum and they will they are showing that they are under the power of sin and as we grow up and become young people and adults over and over the power of sin is displayed in our lives in the way we think and what we say and in how we act the Bible says that our very best efforts to escape from the power of sin will not accomplish anything you and I on our own cannot escape from the power of sin now, I know what some of you are thinking you're saying well I have and in your mind, you're thinking about something. You're saying, well, I used to be an alcoholic, and I'm no longer an alcoholic. I did that by my willpower and determination, or, or I was a drug addict, and I, I no longer abused drugs. I did that on my own, or I used to just cheat around on my wife or on my husband all the time, and I don't do that anymore. I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. See, I can't escape from under the weight, the control of sin on my own. No, you can't. You see, those things, listen, are simply manifestations of our sin. But the sin goes much deeper. The sin is a disease inside of us that is in our DNA. It is coursing through our veins. Our sin is something that has infected and affected every area of our life and though listen though we may be able to keep in check at times some of our sinful actions some of our sinful words some of our sinful thoughts sooner or later 
Sin is going to raise its ugly head because we are under the power of sin. Think for a moment about the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk. Everybody know the Incredible Hulk? Big green guy, you know, all this power. Well, the Incredible Hulk is also Bruce Banner, the, the incredible scientist. And so Bruce Banner, you know, he's got this, this, this idea that he wants to keep himself under control. He doesn't want to hulk out. And so he works hard not to get stressed out, not to get aggravated, not to get mad, not to get upset. And he does a good job. And as, as long as he keeps cool, keeps his blood pressure down, his pulse doesn't get up too high, he's Bruce Banner. But the moment he goes a little too far, the moment somebody sets him off, the moment somebody hits the right button, man, he hulks out. He becomes the green monster. He can't stop it. He can't control it. He can sit there and go, oh, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But he turns green. And that's how it is with us. Every one of us are under the power of sin. And one day, someday, that sin is going to rear its ugly head. We may be able to keep it in check for a while, but we can't keep it in check all the time because sin is in our DNA. It is flowing through our veins. It touches every part of our being. We are under the power of sin. Because we're under the power of sin, we're under the penalty of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The prophet Ezekiel said the soul that sins will die. You see, because I'm controlled by sin, and sin is abhorrent to God, it's rebellion against God, one day I'm going to pay the penalty for my sin, and that's death. Now listen very carefully. This is important. Until we acknowledge that we are under the power of sin, and we need God to deliver us from the power of sin, and we want to be delivered, we will never experience the grace of God. I want you to hear that again. Until I acknowledge that I am under the power of sin and I can't do anything about it. Until I come to that point that I want to be set free from the power of sin, I will never experience the grace of God. And so that's why some of you here today, you're, you're like a Jew. You're a pretty good person. You go to church. You read your Bible. You wear your Sunday best on Sunday morning. But you're lost. Because you're self-righteous and you think you can keep yourself in check and you can't. Sin is coursing through your veins. It is at the core of your DNA is who you are. And until you humble yourself before God, you're never going to experience the grace of God. There are others of you who are caught up in sin. I mean, you're doing terrible, awful things. I mean, it would be embarrassing if we put it up on the screen. And some of you are just content and happy living life your way. I mean, it's your life. I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't bother me, and, and that's okay. But you're under the power of sin, and you're going to be under the penalty of sin. And it's not until you acknowledge that sin and you desire to be set free from that sin that you're going to ever experience the grace of God. So the case, we are all under the power of sin or the charge. Now the case that Paul makes. He says everyone at every level is corrupt. I mean, every part of our being is corrupted by sin. Uh, listen to what he says beginning in verse 10. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. 
No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Paul goes through every part of our lives showing that the power of God has infected every area of our lives. From the top of our heads to the tip of our toes, every ounce, every inch of our being has been poisoned by sin. Paul begins by saying no one is righteous, not even one. Of the 7.5 billion people in the world, no one is righteous. No one is right before God. No one has met his standard. None of us. No one in India, no one in Indiana. No one in England, no one in New England. No one in the Congo, no one in the Carolinas. No one on the face of the planet who is living has met God's righteous standard. No one is righteous. No one throughout human history has met God's righteous standard. We can go back to the beginning of time and we see that. Abraham, the father of the Jews, he was a liar. His son Isaac, he was a liar. His son Jacob was a deceiver. Moses, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, he was a murderer. David, a man after God's own heart, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer. I mean, everyone we look at in the Old Testament is corrupted by sin. Everyone. We get to the New Testament. We look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. Man, every one of them is flawed. We look at Paul, and Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, Paul says of himself, I am the chief of all sinners. No one in history has lived up to God's standards. That includes Billy Graham. That includes Mother Teresa. That includes your good grandma. She hadn't lived up to God's standards. She said, don't be talking about my grandma like that. I'm sorry. Your grandma is not righteous. She's not. No one is righteous. No one is going to be able to stand before God on their own and defend themselves. We have not measured up to God's standards. Now, here's our problem. You see, we judge ourselves by a standard that we have invented in our mind. We, we look at ourselves and we look at other people and we go, I'm better than them. I'm okay. Or, or we set up some other standard. But what you need to understand is you don't set the standard. God does. And God's standard is per perfect righteousness. God's standard is perfect holiness. God's standard is perfect love. God's standard is perfect justice. God's standard is perfection. And you don't measure up. I mean, from our vantage point, looking out at the world, we look at people and we go, well, they're better than them, and that's true, isn't it? I mean, goodness gracious, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, they're better than Saddam Hussein, wouldn't you agree? But that's our vantage point. And God's not looking from our vantage point. He's looking from the holiness of heaven. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you're in Europe and you're taking a cruise ship to New York. And as you get close to New York Harbor, you see the Manhattan skyline. And the Manhattan skyline is impressive, isn't it? 
I mean, and you look at all those tall buildings. You look at One World Trade um, Center. You look at the Empire State Building. You look at, I think it's 432. Those are the, the three tallest buildings in the Manhattan skyline. And you look at those buildings, you go, whoa! Those buildings are, are so much higher. Those buildings are so much more impressive than all the other buildings. And from that vantage point, they are, aren't they? But suppose you don't take a cruise ship. Suppose you take a plane. And you're flying over New York City and the Manhattan skyline at 35,000 feet. Can I tell you, at 35,000 feet, you can't tell a difference between the Empire State Building and a five-story um, apartment building. They all look the same. You see, it's all a matter of perspective. And when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us like we look at ourselves and like we look at others. He looks at us comparing us to himself. And when he compares us to himself, there are none of us, none of us who are righteous. Then notice what he says. He goes on and, and he builds this case. He says there is no one who is wise. That, that talks about our mind. There is no one who understands. There's no one who comprehends. Our minds are darkened by our sin. We don't understand the holiness and the righteousness of God. We don't understand and comprehend the seriousness of our sin. If we did, we would be on our faces every day asking God to forgive us. Someone said it this way. They said, man does not understand how abhorrent his sin is to God, nor at what cost God has provided the very salvation he ignores. If men understood those things, they would be in a hurry to be saved. No one is wise. Then he says, no one is seeking God. Now, I don't know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, that can't be true because all over the world people are seeking God. I mean, look at all the shrines, look at all the temples, look at all the monasteries, look at all the idols all over the world. People are seeking God. But may I say to you, they are seeking a God. They're not seeking God. Here's what the Bible says in, in the book of Jeremiah. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your Heart. And here's the problem. There are none of us that seek after God with all our heart. Look at me. None of us. Not a single one of us. That's why, by the way, this is one of the mysteries of Scripture. Some mystery. That's why we have no hope if God did not seek after us. Did you hear me? We don't seek after God on our own like we need to to be saved. It is only because God seeks after us that we have any hope to be saved. Let me give you an example. I grew up in a Christian home going to church every Sunday. I was drugged to church. And for years, Sunday after Sunday, I would hear the message and it would go in one ear and out the other. But one Sunday, something happened. Something changed. The message resonated with my heart. Why? Can I tell you why? Because God was seeking after me. His Holy Spirit convicted me. That, that's the only difference. What was the difference between the Sunday before and the next Sunday? It wasn't that I was paying attention more. It wasn't that I had read, you know, 50 chapters in the Bible. It was because God was seeking after me. And when he spoke, I responded. By the way, listen to me. 
That's why it's important. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. I mean, when God speaks to you and he calls your name and he seeks you out, you better respond. No one seeks God on their own. Then he says, we've all turned away and become useless. We don't understand. That speaks to our mind. We don't seek after God. That speaks to our heart. We have all turned aside. That speaks to our will. That means that each and every one of us have willfully chosen to disobey God. Listen to what the Bible says. We not only are born into sin, we choose to sin. All of us. We make a willful choice. We get to an age where we understand, where we can make choices, and each and every one of us choose to go our way rather than God's way. Every one of us does. And that's what the Bible says here. We've all turned away. We've, we've all become useless. And then, and then Paul says, no one is good, not even one of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do good things. We can do good things, but there's nothing good in us. What that means is even the good we do is tainted by sin. I mean, all so often, the good that we do is tainted by our sinful motivations. We do good things for the wrong reasons. How can this profit me? What can I get out of it? What's it going to gain me? Now, we may not do that all the time, but we do it a lot of the time. You see, there is no one who is good. There was a book written in 1967. The title of it was, I'm okay, you're okay. Man, that book's so wrong. I mean, the truth is, you're rotten and I'm rotten. We're all rotten to the very core of who we are. And then Paul talks about how our mind, how our heart, and how our will has affected our actions. He, he says our talk is foul. He describes our mouth as an open grave and a poisonous snake. You see, listen to me. Most of us, when we think about sin, we think about these things we do get drunk, we get high, we sleep around, we steal, we, we, we do these things. But the very first proof that Paul gives us that our mind, our heart, and our will are corrupt is what we say. He says our mouths are like open graves. Can you imagine how an open grave stinks? Our mouths are like poisonous snakes. I don't think we understand how, how sinful our words can be. And it's not just the vile and profane and curse words. It's the lies, it's the gossip, it's the slanderous, the hateful words, the half-truths, the, the empty words. I want you to listen. Our words are a window into our heart. Did you hear me? What we say, what comes out of our mouth, is a window into our heart. Can I give you just a few verses? Jude 1 16 these people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires they brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want self-centered people who complain about everything brag about stuff what they do Ephesians 4 29 don't use foul or abusive language let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them Luke 6, 45, a good person produces good things from the treasure of a good heart. An evil person produces evil from the treasure of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. 
Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Proverbs 10, 19, this is one we all need to hear. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible. Keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 13, 3, those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. Can I get a witness? Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. It just kind of spews out. Proverbs 26, 24, people may cover their hatred with pleasant words, but they're deceiving you. You know what that means? You know what Solomon is saying there? He's talking about people that come to you and say, man, Mark, you're great. I love you so much. Man, you're so so cool. You're so godly. You're a great husband. You're a great daddy. You're a great son. Man, you're just great. That Mark McRoberts, he's a goofball. He's a slime bucket. That's what this is talking about. You sit back and you build somebody up to their face. I love you. Thank you for all you do. And then behind your back, they stab you. That's what they're talking about. James 1.26, if you claim to be righteous or religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. Your religion is worthless. Oh, my. I think you get the picture, don't you? Do you get the picture? I mean, our words are a big deal. You see, what we say, and we don't have to say it verbally. We can say it in print. What we say reveals what's in our heart. And then Paul moves from our mouth, and he makes his way to our feet. In verse 15, it literally says their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. In other words, Paul is saying that that what we say is filled with sin. And then he says what we do is filled with sin. And notice what he says, what we do not only affects us, sin and destruction follow in our path. And so, or misery and destruction follow in our path. So what Paul is saying there is, what you do doesn't just have an effect on you, it has an effect on other people as well. So so you can't say, it's my life, I'll do what I want to. Well, you can, but understand, it's your life, and what you do is going to have a residual effect on other people. For instance, what I do is going to have an effect on my wife. What I do is going to have an effect on my children. What I do is going to have an effect on my grandkids. And because of the position that God has given me, what I do is even going to have an effect on you. See, if I do something stupid and I mess up, it's not only going to maybe mess up my life, it can mess up this church. Misery and destruction follow in the path of the things we do. So Paul says, your mind is darkened, your heart is deceived, your will chooses your way, and it shows by what you say, it shows by what you do. And then he says it shows by what you look for. He goes on to the eyes and he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now now what this is saying is, is this, our eyes are the way that we look at the world. And he's saying when we approach life, there's no fear of God, there's no respect of God, there's no, there's no living your life as if God is on his throne. You're living your life from the wrong perspective. There's no fear of God. So Paul gives the charge. We're all under the power of sin. 
He makes his case. Our minds don't seek after God. Our hearts don't seek after God. Our will, we do our will rather than his will. And it shows in what we say. It shows in how we live. It shows in what we pursue. There's no fear of God. And so what is the result? That takes us to the final point, and that is the condemnation. The world is guilty before God. Listen to what it says in verses 19 and 20. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purposes to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. What Paul was saying here is that the law can't save anyone. The law can only expose how sinful we are. Two weeks ago, I was, I was coming to the church on a Tuesday morning. I'd been in Hartsville the day before doing some things for my parents and had a lot of stuff on my mind. I had a meeting that I was supposed to be at, and I was already late. And I called Scott Creed because Scott was in the meeting with me or was supposed to be in the meeting I was supposed to be at that I was late for. And I'm telling Scott, hey, I'm going to be late, you know, about 10 minutes late, so just wait for me to get there. I was on Old Cherokee Road, for y'all that live in Lexington, and I wasn't paying attention to how fast I was going. I was late for a meeting. I had things on my mind, and I turned a curve, and I saw this black SUV parked beside the road. And into the phone, I said, poop. Got to go. Just got pulled. So I hung up. Past the SUV, he turned his light on immediately. I turned into a little neighborhood there, got my driver's license, got my registration, rolled down my window. He came to my car, and I said, you got me. Don't know how fast I was going, but I'm guilty. Don't have my seatbelt on either. Get me for that too. I mean, that's what I said. You know, my wife, my wife said, this is what my wife said. She said, why didn't you put your seatbelt on real quick? So I was guilty. I was guilty. I said, I don't know how fast it's going. He said, well, you're going 25 miles over the speed limit. I said, ooh, okay. I'm guilty. Let me have it. Put it to me. So we came back. I got a ticket, but he gave me a ticket for going five miles over the speed limit. Didn't charge me for not having the seatbelt. He said, slow down. I said, thank you. I deserved a big ticket I was guilty I broke the law now, I could have argued I could have said I got a lot on my mind I'm late for a meeting this is an important meeting my dad's had a stroke and I was just thinking about all this I could have said all kind of stuff but I was guilty I broke the law it was time to pay the piper every morning I get up early and I read my Bible. I, 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 if, you, if you read devotions, that's great. That's wonderful. That's not what I do. I, I just start reading my Bible. And every time I read the Bible, every single morning for the most part, when I get through, I go, man, I'm a slime bucket. I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. I, I, read, I read the Word every morning and and instead of looking at it and thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good today, I look at it and go, golly, I'm a failure. 
say things I shouldn't say. I think things I shouldn't think. I do things I shouldn't do. Every time I read it, convicts me. But it also reveals to me how much God loves me. Because when I read it, and I understand that I deserve God's judgment, I am guilty, and yet God still loves me. And he's chosen through his grace to forgive me. Give me life. I feel so unworthy, but I also feel so loved. I love what somebody said about the law, the Word of God. J.B. Phillips said this. He said, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. When we read the Bible, the Bible shows us how crooked, how sinful, how wicked we really are. The law is, of God is like a mirror. It shows how dirty we really are. The purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. You don't take the mirror off the wall and rub it on your face. The purpose of the mirror is to direct us to the water. The law is like that. It doesn't save us. It's meant to drive us to the only place where we can be saved, the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we read the word, that's what happens. We don't read the word and go, man, I am doing better than my wife. I live with her. I know how she acts. She may have you fooled, but she doesn't fool me. And I know I'm doing better than some of you. I've seen your Facebook posts. That's not what I do. When I read the word of God, I go, man, I am so guilty. You know what it does? It drives me to the one who can save me, and that's Jesus. He's changed my life. And that's what the gospel is all about. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the gospel. God forgives us. He restores us. He makes us right. But he goes further than that. He doesn't just forgive us. He restores us. He makes us right. He changes us from the inside out. And so if you're here and you're saying, that's what I need, that's what I want, I'm here to tell you that God is seeking you today. He so desperately wants to save you. So, so don't leave this place without responding to God's grace and God's mercy. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes with your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you're saying, Rocky, that's what I need. I need grace. I need God to forgive me. I need him to come into my life and save me and change me and make me new. I need him to love me unconditionally because I, I, I just know my best is never going to be good enough. And I'm here to tell you, you can pray this prayer to him right now and he'll hear your prayer and he'll save you. So if that's what you need to do, they pray this prayer right now. Dear Jesus. I humbly come before you this morning asking you to forgive all my sins. I know I've rebelled against you. I know I've lived life my way, and I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, I know you love me. I know that you came to this earth. You shed your blood on the cross. You died in my place so that I could be forgiven. Right now, I'm trusting you to save me.
I'm giving you my life. Save me. Change me. Make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. From this moment on, Jesus, because you love me so much, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.